You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, February 7th. I'm Eleanor McCullough from Drake University, and here is our first story. The headline is Court Denies Trump's Request for Immunity, and the subheading is Appeals Panel Says He's Subject to Prosecution. Challenge expected. A federal appeals panel ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump can face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, sharply rejecting the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution while setting the stage for additional challenges that could further delay the case. The ruling is significant not only for its stark reputation of Trump's novel immunity claims, but also because it breathes life back into a landmark prosecution that was effectively frozen for weeks as the court considered the appeal. The one-month gap between when the court heard arguments and issued its ruling created uncertainty about the timing of a trial in a packed election year, with the judge overseeing the case last week, canceling the initial March 4th date. Trump's team vowed to appeal, which could postpone the case by weeks or months, particularly if the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. The appeals panel, which included two appointees by President Joe Biden and one Republican-appointed judge, gave Trump a week to ask the Supreme Court to get involved. The eventual trial date carries enormous political ramifications, with special counsel Jack Smith's team hoping to prosecute Trump this year and the Republican frontrunner seeking to delay it until after the November election. If Trump were to defeat Biden, he could presumably try to use his position as head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to dismiss the federal cases he faces or potentially could seek a pardon for himself. Tuesday's unanimous ruling is the second time since December that judges ruled Trump can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to the January 6, 2021, when a mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. The opinion, which was expected given the skepticism with which the panel greeted the Trump team's arguments, was unsparing in its repudiation of Trump's novel claim that former presidents enjoy absolute immunity for actions that fall within their official job duties. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump, with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the court wrote. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The judges said the public interest in criminal accountability outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action, turning aside the claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would prevent the recognition of election results or violate the rights of citizens to vote. We cannot accept the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, the judges wrote. A Trump spokesman said Tuesday that the former president would appeal the ruling to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. In a post on Truth Social after the ruling was issued, Trump insisted that a president must have full immunity in order to properly function and do what has to be done for the good of our country. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit took center stage in the immunity despite Dispute after the Supreme Court in December said it was at least temporarily staying out, rejecting a request from Smith's team to take up the matter quickly and issue a speedy ruling. But the High Court could yet decide to act on a Trump appeal. There is no timetable for the Supreme Court to act, but the justices are likely to seek Smith's input before deciding whether to keep the legal rulings against the former president in place. If the court declines to consider the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkan would be able to restart the trial proceedings. If, on the other hand, 
the Supreme Court accedes to Trump's request, any timetable it establishes would determine how much longer the trial might be delayed. If the court grants Trump's request without speeding up the appeals process, Trump would likely have until early May before he would need to file his full appeal. But the justices could set much quicker deadlines for reaching a final decision. The Supreme Court has previously held that the presidents are immune from civil liability for official acts, and Trump's lawyers for months argued that the protection should be extended to criminal prosecution as well. They said the actions Trump was accused of in his failed bid to cling to power after he lost the 2020 election, including badgering his vice president to refuse to certify the results of the election, all fell within the outer perimeters of a president's official acts. But Smith's team has said that no such immunity exists in the U.S. Constitution or in prior cases, and that, in any event, Trump's actions weren't part of his official duties. The case in Washington is one of four prosecutions Trump faces as he seeks to reclaim the White House. He faces federal charges in Florida that he illegally retained classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate, a case that was also brought by Smith and is set for trial in May. He's also charged in state court in Georgia with scheming to subvert that state's 2020 election and in New York in connection with hush money payments made to porn actor Stormy Daniels. He has denied any wrongdoing. The next headline is Millions Across Country Could Lose Internet Service Subsidy. President Joe Biden recently traveled to North Carolina to promote his goal of affordable internet access for all Americans, but the promise for 23 million families across the U.S. is on shaky ground. That's because a subsidy that helps people with limited resources afford internet access is set to expire this spring. The Affordable Connectivity Program, ACP, which provides $30 a month for qualifying families in most places and $75 on tribal lands, will run out of money by the end of April if Congress doesn't extend it further. I think this should be high priority for Congress, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat who has worked with a bipartisan group of governors to promote the program, said in a phone interview. To many families, $30 a month is a big deal. It matters a lot to Shirlene Alexander of Charlotte, who said the money she saves through the ACP goes toward her grocery bills. It also offsets some of the stress she feels over medical bills. If they took ACP away, it would be like taking food out of my mouth, said Alexander, a senior citizen on a fixed income. I need the service, and some of my senior citizen friends need it as well. The program is key to the Biden administration's plans to make the internet available to everyone, which the president has touted repeatedly as he has ramped up his re-election campaign. He has likened it to the Rural Electrification Administration, the New Deal program that delivered electricity to much of rural America in the 1930s. Our goal is to connect everyone in America to affordable, reliable, high-speed internet by the year 2030. Everyone in America, <clears throat> just like Franklin Roosevelt did a generation ago with electricity, President Biden said in Riley last month. So far, only 43% of eligible households nationwide have signed up for the ACP subsidy, but the program has enabled people who have signed up to avoid the kinds of financial trade-offs Alexander described, said Brian Vo, chief investment officer of Connect Humanity, a nonprofit promoting widespread internet access. It also gives them access to vital services such as telehealth, remote schooling, and work, he said. If you put ACP and affordability in the context of the social determinants it drives and the economic value created, the benefits far outweigh the cost of $30 per household.
Foe said. If the program expires, participating families, including nearly 900,000 in North Carolina, will either lose internet access or have to pay more to stay connected. North Carolina is among the top states in the country when it comes to taking advantage of the ACP, according to an AP analysis of the program. More than 50% of eligible households in the state are enrolled in the program. A bipartisan group of lawmakers recently proposed a bill to sustain the ACP through the end of, the 2020, uh, end of 2024 with an additional $7 billion in funding, $1 billion more than what Biden asked Congress to appropriate for the program at the end of last year. The White House is pressing lawmakers to extend the program, but no votes have been scheduled to move the bill forward, and it's unclear if the program will be prioritized in a divided Congress. For President Biden, internet is like water, Tom Perez, senior advisor and assistant for the president, said Monday. It's an essential public necessity that should be affordable and accessible to everyone. In the meantime, the Federal Communications Commission has already taken steps to wind the program down. It has instructed Internet providers to send notices about the projected end of the program and announced that it will stop accepting new enrollees after February 7th. Nate Denny, the Deputy Director for Broadband for North Carolina, says he's extremely worried about the winding down of the subsidy program, especially as the state is set to receive a total of $1.5 billion from the federal government. Most of that money will be awarded to internet providers to build internet infrastructure in areas that need it most. The ACP has a tremendous effect on adoption, but it also has a huge impact on the state's ability to stretch available infrastructure funding, Denny said. The ACP reduces the amount of grant money an internet provider needs to build into lower-income communities because it provides the assurance of a steady customer base, according to the state broadband leaders. The AP spoke with and an analysis from a nonprofit, Common Sense Media, and consulting firm Boston Consulting Group. The infrastructure money comes from a pot of $42.5 billion allocated for the Broadband Equity, Access, and Deployment BEAD, program. The cornerstone of the Biden administration's efforts to close the digital divide for good. In December, states submitted draft plans dealing detailing lower-cost plans that providers who build networks using bead money will be required to offer qualifying families. Several states incorporated the ACP subsidies into those draft plans in ways that would lower the cost for internet access to zero for some customers. Though those lower-cost plans wouldn't work as designed without support from the federal subsidy program, a spokesperson from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration said, bead will stay connected Bede will still connect everyone in America and ensure that newly connected households will, will have access to affordable plans. The ACP program has a wide swath of support from public interest groups, local and state-level broadband officials, and big and small telecommunications providers. We were very aggressive in trying to assist our members with access to the program, said Gary Johnson, CEO of Paul Bunyan Communications, a Minnesota-based internet provider. Frankly, it was they have internet or not. It's almost not a subsidy. It's enabling them to have internet at all. The next headline is California's iconic wharfs under siege. 
More storms, rising seas, and huge waves are taking their toll on California's iconic piers that have dotted the Pacific coast since the gold rush, posing the biggest threat yet to the beach landmarks that have become a quintessential part of the landscape. At least a half dozen public piers are closed after being damaged repeatedly by storms, with multiple atmospheric rivers hitting the state over the past year. Repair costs have climbed into the millions of dollars. Among those shuttered is the pier in Cap Capitola, <laughs> built in 1857, that predates the northern California town and is a popular spot to watch passing whales and dolphins. Another damaged by storms in San Diego, the Ocean Beach Pier, offers a bird's-eye view of surfers carving waves below. More damage is possible this year with El Nino, which is expected to bring additional storms to California caused by the temporary warming of parts of the Pacific that changes weather worldwide. Back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers have been drenching California, causing flooded roads, toppled trees, and traffic accidents. City engineers are looking at redesigning piers to withstand bigger surf with a rise in sea levels. Other face relocation or removal. We are very much in a changed environment, said Mike Beck, director of the Center for Coastal Climate Resilience at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we're not going to be able to rebuild back in the same places and in the same ways that we did before. We're going to have to think more clearly about how we design and where we put these. Most piers have undergone major repairs after enduring everything from fires to erosion, but officials say they are now being damaged at an unprecedented rate. Waves rising to heights topping 20 feet in late December pummeled the 855-foot-long Capitol Wharf in Santa Cruz County. Only months after Pineapple Express fueled storms in January 2023 collapsed a large section. The Capitol Wharf is a pier by nautical standards since it runs perpendicular to the shore versus a traditional wharf running parallel. San Diego's Ocean Beach Pier, a nearly 2,000-foot concrete structure built in 1966, has been repeatedly battered since 2019. The pier was still undergoing repairs after beatings from high surf that closed it twice last year when a monster swell in January wiped away a, a piling. The city is exploring replacing the structure after spending more than $1.7 million in fixes over the past five years. It has secured $8.4 million in state funds for a new one. Among the three proposed designs is one with interconnected pathways, giving it a different look. California's State Park Service demolished the 93-year-old pier at Seaside State Beach near Aptos in Santa Cruz County after a January 2023 storm surge smashed it in half. Communities are grappling with whether they can afford to keep their piers, which will need taller and stronger pillings that could make their historic look more industrial, Beck said. But those are tough conversations for many who consider the piers almost sacred. It's sometimes a little bit of a funny thing here in California, the way that we love our peers, he said. For generations, the structures have provided families, fishers, tourists, and others a peaceful place to experience the ocean without getting wet. In Ventura, west of Los Angeles, the Visitors and Convention Bureau waxes poetic about the pier built in 1872 that it calls the city's centerpiece. Walk Ventura's beaches and, in the distance, it wavers like a child's matchstick project, the Bureau states on its website. 
Sit on the sand at its base on a calm day, and it whispers a lovely song any ocean and pier lover knows. California's oldest piers served steamships and were lifelines for settlements to get lumber, bricks, and cement, with much of the coast decades from being reached by a railroad. Piers were later built for tourism, like the Santa Monica Pier, which has an amusement park with the world's first solar-powered Ferris wheel. The next headline is Jury Finds Mother Guilty, and the subheading is Teen is Serving a Life Sentence for Rampage that Left Four Dead. A Michigan jury convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntary manslaughter in Tuesday in the killings of four students in 2021. Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly, 45, had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from harming others. She was accused of failing to secure a gun and ammunition at home and failing to help get support Ethan Crumbly's mental health. The four guilty verdicts, one for each student slain at Oxford High School, were returned after about 11 hours of deliberations. Jennifer and James Crumbly were the first parents in the U.S. to be charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child. James Crumbly faces trial in March. The cries have been heard, and I feel this verdict is going to echo throughout every household in the country. Victim Justin Schilling's father, Craig Schilling, said outside the courtroom, I feel it's necessary, and I'm happy with the verdict. It's still a sad situation to be in. It's got to stop. It's an accountability, and this is what we've been asking for a long time now, Schilling said. On the morning of November 30th, 2021, school staff members were concerned about a violent drawing of a gun, bullet, and wounded man accompanied by desperate phrases on Ethan Crumbly's math assignment. His parents were called to the school for a meeting, but they didn't take the boy home. A few hours later, Ethan Crumbly pulled a handgun from his backpack and shot 10 students and a teacher. No one had checked the backpack. The gun was the Sig Sauer 9mm his father purchased with him just four days earlier. Jennifer Crumbly took her son to a shooting range that same weekend. Outside the courthouse, the jury forewoman, who declined to give her name, said jurors were influenced by evidence that Jem- Jennifer Crumbly was the last adult to possess the gun. That really hammered it home, she told reporters. Indeed, the jury saw images of Jennifer Crumbly leaving the shooting range with the gun in a box. He literally drew a picture of what he was going to do, Prosecutor Karen McDonald said. It says, help me. Ethan Crumbly, now 17, pleaded guilty to murder and terrorism and is serving a life sentence. Jennifer Crumbly will get credit for about two and a half years in the county jail when she returns to court for sentencing on April 9th. The next headline... Biden tells Republicans to show some spine. The subheading, border security and Ukraine aid deal looks to be all but finished. A Senate deal on border enforcement measures and Ukraine aid suffered collapse Tuesday as Republicans withdrew support despite President Joe Biden urging Congress to show some spine and stand up to Donald Trump. Just minutes after the Democratic president's remarks at the White House, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell emerged from a GOP luncheon at the Capitol and acknowledged the deal was dead. It showed McConnell's slipping control of his GOP conference, Trump's growing influence, and Biden's ability only to look on as a cornerstone of his foreign policy, halting Russian President Vladimir Putin's advance into Europe, crumbled in Congress. The bill also would have designated tens of billions of dollars more for Israel 
other U.S. allies in Asia, the U.S. immigration system, and humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza and Ukraine. The President and Senate leaders are now stranded with no clear way to advance aid for Ukraine through Congress. House Republicans on Tuesday night failed to pass a separate $17.6 billion package of military aid for Israel that contained no aid for Ukraine. The next headline is Qatar Gets Positive Response. The subheading, Negotiators Are Trying to Arrange a Ceasefire Between Hamas and Israel. Hamas's response to the latest plan for a ceasefire in Gaza and the release of hostages was generally positive, key mediator Qatar said Tuesday as the militant group reiterated its demand for an end to the war, something Israel so far ruled out. Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al Thani announced the response during a news conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Bill. Blinken, who said he would brief Israeli leaders on it Wednesday when he meets with them. Blinken, who met with Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman the day before, said the Saudis still have a strong interest in normalizing relations with Israel, but require an end to the war and a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Qatar, which has long mediated with Hamas, is working with the U.S. and Egypt to broker a ceasefire that would involve a halt in fighting for several weeks and the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Hamas after its October 7th cross-border raid that ignited the war. Hamas said in a statement that it responded in a positive spirit to the latest proposal, but the militant group said it still seeks a comprehensive and complete ceasefire to end the aggression against our people. Hamas is also expected to demand the release of a large number of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants, in exchange for the hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Netanyahu has ruled out both demands, saying Israel is committed to continuing its offensive until total victory over Hamas and to returning all the hostages. He has also dismissed U.S. calls for the creation of a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, Tuesday, two ships traveling in the Middle East waters were attacked by suspected Yemen Houthi rebel drones. Authorities said the latest assaults in the Iranian-backed fighters campaign of targeting vessels over Israel's war on Hamas. No injuries were reported in either incident. Since November, the rebels have repeatedly targeted ships in the Red Sea over Israel's offensive in Gaza against Hamas. In recent weeks, the United States and other allies launched airstrikes targeting Houthi missile arsenals and launch sites for its attacks. The next story is House GOP fails in bid to impeach Mayorkas. Defectors sink party plan in close, vo close vote over issues at border. In a dramatic setback, House Republicans failed Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, forced to shelve a high-profile priority, for now, after a few GOP lawmakers refused to go along with the party's plan. The 214-216 roll call fell just a single vote short of impeaching Mayorkas, stalling the Republicans' drive to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. With Democrats united against the charges, the Republicans needed almost every vote from their slim majority to approve the articles of impeachment. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas, but the next steps are highly uncertain. 
House Speaker Mike Johnson, who could lose only a few Republicans from his slim majority, said he personally spoke to the GOP holdouts acknowledging the heavy, heavy vote as he sought their support. The impeachment charges against Mayorkas come as border security is fast becoming a top political issue in the 2024 election. Not since 1876 had a cabinet secretary faced impeachment charges. Next, we have a report, Bolts Missing from Boeing Plane Panel. Bolts that helped secure a panel to a Boeing 737 MAX 9 were missing before the panel blew off the Alaska Airlines plane during a January 5th flight, according to accident investigators. The National Transportation Safety Board issued a preliminary report Tuesday. It included a photo from Boeing, which worked on the panel, called a door plug. In the photo, three of the four bolts that prevent the panel from moving upward are missing. The location of the fourth bolt is obscured. Investigators said lack of certain damage around the panel indicates all four bolts were missing before the plane took off from Portland, Oregon. Pilots were forced to make an emergency landing. Without the bolts, nothing prevented the panel from sliding upward and detaching. The NTSB did not declare a probable cause for the accident. That will come at the end of an investigation that could last a year or longer. The next headline is LA area sees at least 475 mudslides due to storm. One of the wettest storms in Southern California history unleashed at least 475 mudslides in the Los Angeles area after dumping more than half the amount of rainfall the city typically gets in a season in just two days. And officials warned Tuesday that the threat was not over yet. The storm continued to pose hazards, with the National Weather Service issuing a rare tornado warning for San Diego County. The warning later was canceled, though the storm briefly turned some San Diego streets into rivers. Officials expressed relief that the storm hadn't yet killed anyone or caused a major catastrophe in Los Angeles, though seven deaths were reported elsewhere, including one early Tuesday at the California-Mexico border of someone trying to enter the U.S., according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And for a few news briefs... Meta said Tuesday that users in coming months will see labels on AI-generated images that appear on Facebook and Instagram, part of a broader tech industry initiative. U.S. tax revenues are expected to rise by as much as $561 billion from 2024 to 2034, thanks to stepped-up enforcement made possible with funds from the Inflation Reduction Act, according to analysis released Tuesday by the Treasury Department and the IRS. Authorities issued cease-and-desist orders Tuesday against two Texas companies believed connected to robocalls that used artificial intelligence to mimic President Joe Biden's voice and discourage people from voting in New Hampshire's primary last month. Two people attacked Turkey's largest courthouse before being shot dead Tuesday in an exchange of fire that also left one other person dead and five wounded. Authorities allege the assailants were part of an extremist organization. The death toll from wildfires that ravaged central Chile for several days increased to 131 on Tuesday, and more than 300 people were still missing as the blazes appeared to be burning themselves out. The conservative group Project Veritas and its former leader acknowledged claims of ballot mishandling at a Pennsylvania post office in 2020 were untrue as a lawsuit filed against them by a Pennsylvania postmaster was settled Monday. 
You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, February 7th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Eleanor McCullough from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. And now on to some sports. The first headline is Chiefs Like Being Underdogs. For most of the past six years, Patrick Mahomes has had to manufacture the chip that he carries on his shoulder because the Kansas City Chiefs have been so good for so long that they were almost always expected to win. That is no longer the case. During a season in which the Chiefs scuffled along on offense and at one point lost five of eight games, they went from being the favorite on a weekly basis to something entirely different, an underdog. They became the team that received the points when betting lines came out, rather than giving them up, and that chip on Mahomes' shoulder suddenly appeared on its own. It kind of lit a fire under some guys, Mahomes admitted, including myself. Perish the thought of giving that the two-time league and Super Bowl MVP another reason to feel he needs to prove himself. Yet that is exactly what Mahomes has done in the playoffs, where he's played the best he has all season. He threw for 262 yards and a touchdown in a frigid wildcard win over Miami, doubled down with 215 yards passing and two scores in a divisional win in Buffalo, and had 241 yards passing and a TD in Baltimore, all without throwing an interception. In the past two of those games, the Chiefs were underdogs at kickoff, just as they likely will be when they play the 49ers in the Super Bowl on Sunday in the gambling mecca of Las Vegas. San Francisco has been a consistent 1.5-point favorite, according to FanDuel Sportsbook, though that number could change by game time. Only five teams since 2000 have won the Super Bowl while being underdogs in each of their final three games. Listen, we understand the reasoning behind it. I mean, we get it, and understandably so, Chiefs coach Andy Reid said. We may not be the prettiest bunch, but we're going to battle, and that's kind of been the personality of this team. I don't think it bothers us, Reid added. We understand, so it is what it is. In fact, the Chiefs seems to relish the underdog role. Mahomes certainly does. He is 9-3 to as an underdog, giving him the best winning percentage of any quarterback with a minimum of 10 starts, playoffs included, over the past 15 seasons. The Ravens' Lamar Jackson, whom Mahomes vanquished in the AFC title game a little more than a week ago, is next on the list at 9-5 to as an underdog. In fact, the bigger the underdog, the more successful the Chiefs have been in recent years. In five games that they have been at least a 3.5-point underdog since Mahomes took over as their starting QB, they won four times outright. In the lone loss in a game against the Patriots in October 2018, they were four-point underdogs and lost by a field goal, covering the spread. One player who doesn't subscribe to the notion that the Chiefs are underdogs is 49ers tight end George Kittle. He was on the losing sideline in the Super Bowl four years ago when the Chiefs rallied with three fourth-quarter touchdowns to win their first Lombardi trophy in 50 years. The rest of the time, Kittle has watched from afar as Kansas City went to six straight AFC title games, won four of them, and hoisted another Lombardi trophy when they beat the Eagles last year. They should have all the attention, Kittle said. I think they're very used to it. 
I don't think it's a distraction for them. But while we might be under the radar, I guess, to people on the outside, I think the Chiefs are very aware that we're not. No, one thing the Chiefs rarely do is overlook an opponent, and it seems downright absurd that they would start at the Super Bowl, particularly against the 49ers, who have been favored in each of the 20 games they have played this season. The next headline, Jokish, Gilgis Alexander ascend to MVP favorites. The NBA MVP race just became a little more wide open now that Joel Embiid's chances at a repeat have ended. The Philadelphia 76ers' big man was the odds-on favorite at the midway mark of the season before the announcement that he would need surgery to repair the lateral meniscus in his left knee. Embiid had surgery Tuesday. The Sixers did not release any kind of timetable on his return. There's still a chance he could return for the postseason. There's just no chance he can extend his MVP reign, given the league's new rules on minimum games necessary to be eligible for awards. Nikola Jokic, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Janis Antetokounmpo slide into the MVP driver's seat. Jokic, in particular, has the inside track to, er to earn a third MVP title in four seasons for the defending champion Denver Nuggets. Close behind is Gilgis Alexander, the rising standout for Oklahoma City, and never count out the Greek freak. Really, though, this could be the year of the dark horse, as someone not named Embid, Jokish, or Atentankupo attempts to claim the NBA MVP trophy for the first time since 2017-18. The odds favor Jokish, improving to minus 150, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. Gilgis Alexander is at plus 230, and Atentankupo, a two-time MVP winner, checks in at plus 650. There are a few long shots to keep an eye on, including Jalen Brunson. His MVP stock continues to rise as the New York Knicks remain near the top of the Eastern Conference, despite missing Julius Randle. Don't forget about Kawhi Leonard, either, a catalyst for the resurgent Los Angeles Clippers, or Dallas standout guard Luka Donick, who erupted for 73 points on January 26th, the top mark this season. Embiid had 70 four days prior. Or Boston do-everything forward Jason Tatum, or even Anthony Edwards, who's at plus 50,000 to win an MVP as he's guided the Minnesota Timberwolves to a tie for the top spot of the Western Conference with the Thunder. The misfortune of Embiid has opened up the door not only for the MVP race, but criticism about the game minimum standards that went into effect this season to discourage what's become, what's become known as load management, resting healthy players. The new collective bargaining agreement requires players, in most instances, to play in 65 regular season games to be eligible for awards such as MVP or the All-NBA teams. It's a slippery slope. Embiid hurt his left knee last week in a loss to the Golden State Warriors, but he had already been bothered by knee injuries this season that cost him considerable playing time. He sat out the game in Denver and another in Portland before suffering an injury that requires surgery. Health is something that we just cannot take for granted, said Monica McNutt, an NBA, WNBA, and college basketball analyst for ESPN. I was even at the point of like, okay, well, if Embiid misses MVP, he's already been able to accomplish that. You just want him healthy in the postseason. I mean, our league is at its best when the stars are available and doing what they do best brightly on the biggest stages. The next sports headline is Hall Clemson take down number three UNC. 
P.J. Hall had 25 points along with the go-ahead put back, with 3 minutes and 14 seconds left as Clemson survived a blown 16-point lead to stun number 3 North Carolina 80-76 on Tuesday night, earning a marquee win for a team battling to improve its NCAA tournament chances. Joseph Gerard III added 21 points for the Tigers, 15-7, 5-6 ACC, including a huge three-pointer at the two-minute, nine-second mark to follow Hall's basket. That was part of a 7-0 spurt that provided just enough as the Tigers never trailed yet had to fight to the final seconds to secure the win against the Tar Heels, 18-5, 10-2, who were coming off an emotional rivalry win against number 9 Duke three days earlier. Clemson lost its first 59 games in Chapel Hill before breaking through in 2020 for an overtime win. Now the Tigers have won two of three trips here since, fueled by Hull's strong showing after struggling in last month's home loss, 10 points on four for 13 shooting. Hall hit two free throws with 4.6 seconds left, sealing a win that had Ian Scheiflin, 14 points, 11 rebounds, joining several Tigers players waving goodbye to the UNC crowd while skipping their way to the tunnel after the horn. Armando Baycott had 24 points and 13 rebounds to lead UNC, while R.J. Davis added 22, but the Tar Heels shot just 36.9% and made 9 of 27 three-pointers. Number 1, UConn 71, Butler 62. Donovan Klingen had 18 points and 14 rebounds to lead Connecticut over visiting Butler for its 11th straight win. Camp Spencer added 20 points for the Huskies. DJ Davis scored 21 points and Jamal Telfort added 17 for the Bulldogs, who entered on a four-game winning streak. Number 5, Houston 79, Oklahoma State 63. Jamal Sheed scored 23 points. Emmanuel Sharp added 16, and Houston beat visiting Oklahoma State. The Cougars played most of the second half without coach Kelvin Sampson, who got two technical fouls and was ejected with 15 minutes and 8 seconds remaining. Javon Small scored 18 points for the Cowboys. Number 13, Baylor 79. Number 23, Texas Tech 73. Ray J. Dennis scored 21 points. Seven-foot freshman Yves Misi had 17 points with some impressive dunks, and Baylor handed visiting Texas Tech its third consecutive loss. Jaden Nunn added 14 points for the one Bears, including seven in the 13-0 run that put them ahead to stay. Joe Toussaint had 18 points for the Red Raiders. Number 14, Iowa State, 70, Texas, 65. Mylon Momklovic scored 13 points, and Iowa State held off a furious rally by host Texans over the final 10 minutes. The Cyclones led by 19 points in the second half, only to see the Longhorns claw their way back behind Dylan Disu, who scored 28 points, including 16 in a row in the second half. Number 15, South Carolina 68, Ole Miss 65. Colin Murray Boyles scored 16 points and South Carolina reached 20 wins for the first time in seven years with a home victory over Mississippi. The Gamecocks won their first game as a ranked team and sixth in a row overall after not appearing in the top 25 since 2017. Number 17, Kentucky 109, Vanderbilt 77. 
Antonio Reeves scored 27 points, leading six Kentucky players in double figures, and the Wildcats routed struggling Vanderbilt in Nashville. Kentucky snapped a two-game skid against the Com Commodores. Evan Taylor led Vanderbilt with 20 points. Number 18, Dayton 94, St. Joseph 79. Nate Santos and Kobe Elvis each scored 21 points, and Javon Bennett added 18 to lead Dayton over St. Joseph's in Philadelphia. Oklahoma 82, number 21, BYU 66. Javian McCollum scored 20 points, including 15 in the second half, and Oklahoma beat visiting BYU. Nevada 77, number 2, Utah State 63. Nick Davidson scored a career-high 25 points and had 10 rebounds as Nevada ended a 13-game home-running streak by Utah State. Number 25, New Mexico 91, Wyoming 73. Donovan Dent had 19 points and 7 assists to lead New Mexico over Wyoming. Now for a hockey story, Lindholm nets 2 in Kankuk's debut. Elias Lindholm scored two power play goals in his first game with Vancouver and JT Miller provided the winning goal in the Kankuk's 3-2 victory over the Carolina Hurricanes on Tuesday night. Lindholm, a veteran center who began his career with the Hurricanes, had one goal in each of the first two periods as the Kankucks returned from the All-Star break and increased their points streak to 12 games. Vancouver acquired Lindholm last week from the Calgary Flames. He played five NHL seasons with the Hurricanes, which drafted him in 2013. Jordan Martinuk and Sebastian Ejo scored for Carolina, which had its winning streak snapped after three games. Canadians 5, Capitals 2. Nick Suzuki and Giraj Salfokski each scored twice, helping Montreal hand Washington its fifth loss in a row. Alex Ovechkin had his 10th goal of the season for the Capitals, whose next four opponents are the top four teams in the NHL. Stars 2, Sabres 1. Jake Oettinger stopped 47 shots, and Stam Steele scored midway through the second period, helping Dallas beat host Buffalo for its fourth consecutive victory. Flames 4, Bruins 1. Andre Kuzmenko stored in his team debut, Nazim Kadri had three assists, and Calgary beat host Boston. Penguins 3, Jets 0. Tristan Jerry stopped 24 shots in his NHL-leading sixth shutout this season, and host Pittsburgh beat slumping Winnipeg. Devils 5, Avalanche 3. John Marino scored the go-ahead goal late in the third period. Vitek Vancek made 35 saves, and host New Jersey beat Colorado. Flyers 2, Panthers 1. Noah Cates scored the go-ahead goal, two minutes and 36 seconds into the third period, and Philadelphia defeated host Florida. Golden Knights 3, Oilers 1. Vegas ended visiting Edmonton's winning streak at 16 games. The Oilers fell one win short of tying the 1992-93 Pittsburgh Penguins for the NHL record. Another hockey story? Former Senators coach joins Kings. Former Ottawa coach DJ Smith was hired as an assistant coach by the Los Angeles Kings on Tuesday. General Manager Rob Blake said Monday the Kings were looking to hire an assistant coach from outside the organization after Jim Hiller was named interim coach. 
Hiller was promoted last Friday after Todd McClellan was fired after four-plus seasons as head coach. Smith was the fourth NHL coach fired this season on December 18th. He was 1-3-1-1-5-4-32 behind the Senators' bench and never reached the playoffs. Smith and Hiller spent four seasons together in Toronto as assistants on Mike Babcock's staff. The Kings hold the first wildcard spot in the Western Conference with 56 points, but are only four points from falling out. They are 3-8-6 in their last 17 games. Back to the NBA, Cavs push through injuries, pile up wins. The Cleveland Cavaliers are climbing fast. Unfazed by injuries, they've won six straight games and gone an NBA best 19-4 since December 16th, one day after starters Darius Garland and Evan Mobley were lost for six weeks with, with injuries. But a season that appeared doomed has turned into something else. The Cavs have won 14 of 15 and moved into the number two spot in the Eastern Conference. Cleveland had to change its defense when Garland and Mobley were out. The Cavs are shooting more threes and playing at a faster pace. Of course, it helps to have Donovan Mitchell leading the way. The 27-year-old has been everything Cleveland could have hoped for when it traded for him in September 2022. He's averaging 28.2 points with career highs in assists 6.4, rebounds 5.4, and steals 1.9. For a football story, Chargers' new GM excited about Harbaugh. Joe Horitz is happy to partner with Jim Harbaugh to form what Los Angeles Chargers fans are hoping will be a dynamic duo. However, the Bolts' new general manager has his limits. Before I got the interview here, we talked about Batman and Robin, and certainly that's the way we're going to operate. The only thing is, I'm not wearing tights. I may put a cape on, but I'm not wearing tights, Horitz said during his introductory news conference on Tuesday. Horitz comes to Los Angeles after spending his entire 26-year NFL career with the Baltimore Ravens, working his way up from area scout to director of player personnel. Horitz accepted the job on January 29th, the day after the Ravens lost to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. Horitz has known Harbaugh for 26 years, dating to when Harbaugh was a quarterback for the Ravens. Their relationship grew over the years as Horitz did plenty of scouting at Stanford and Michigan. Chargers Director of Football Operations John Spanos said the team's approach in hiring a general manager and coach was different from 2013, when the plan was to hire the GM first. Horitz replaces Tom Telesco, who was fired along with coach Brandon Staley on December 15th after a 63-21 loss at Las Vegas. The Chargers made the playoffs three times during Telesco's tenure, but had an 86-98 record and didn't win a division title. A couple of briefs. The Eagles, Kellen Moore has joined Philadelphia staff as offensive coordinator after already filling that role with two other NFL teams over the past five years. Moore had worked as the offensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Chargers this past season as part of a staff headed by Brandon Stanley. Staley. The Chargers filed, fired Staley on December 15th. Moore was the Dallas Cowboys offensive coordinator from 2019 to 2022. Chargers. Jesse Minter is following Harbaugh from the University of Michigan to Los Angeles. Minter was announced as the Chargers defensive coordinator on Tuesday night. He is the second member of Harbaugh's Michigan staff to be confirmed as taking a job with Los Angeles. 
Ben Herbert was announced as the strength and conditioning coach last week. Giants. New York coach Brian Dable took his time interviewing defensive coordinators before choosing Shane Bowen. Dable formerly hired Bowen to replace veteran coordinator Wink Martindale. Bowen spent the previous six seasons in Tennessee. The Titans promoted him to defensive coordinator in 2021 after he spent his first three years as the team's outside linebackers coach. Raiders. Las Vegas hired former Chicago Bears offensive coordinator Luke Getze as their OC. The Raiders went to their second option after Cliff Kingsbury withdrew from the consideration Saturday. Coach Antonio Pierce will be looking for Getze to help turn around an offensive that this past season was 27th in yards per game and 23rd in scoring. Buccaneers Liam Cohen said leaving Kentucky to become OC of Tampa Bay and potentially work with Baker Mayfield again was a no-brainer. Cohen was formally introduced as the newest member of the Bucks coaching staff on Tuesday, a move that could enhance the team's chances of re-signing Mayfield. Patriots According to an AP source, former Giants coach Ben McAdoo is working a deal, working out a deal to join New England as a senior offensive assistant. The 46-year-old last served as Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator under Matt Rule in 2022. Joining the staff of new Patriots coach Jared Mayo will reunite McAdoo with Alex Van Pelt. Now on to some lifestyle stories. The first one, I could be a calendar guy. Inspired by pop legend Neil Sedaka, who is most famous for his 1960 hit song Calendar Girl, I love, I love, I love to be a calendar guy each and every day of the year. And since it's 2024 already, this can mean only one thing for a geezer like me. Time flies when you're incoherent. That is why, as I leap into this year, which gives me an extra day to do nothing, I am grateful for a calendar featuring my five grandchildren. In fact, I have two calendars. One hangs on the refrigerator door, so when I stumble downstairs in the morning to make coffee, I can see the kitties' smiling faces smile back at them and, not always the case for guys my age, know what day it is. The other calendar, which is smaller but no less delightful, is on the desk in my office. It also features great photos of my grandchildren. This inspires me when I sit down in front of the computer with my coffee and, as I rack what little is left of my brain for a column idea, write about my grandchildren. The calendar tradition was started a few years ago by my younger daughter, the mother of my oldest two granddaughters, ages 10 and 7. She makes the calendars using photos of her kids and her sister's children, a boy, 6, and his twin siblings, a girl and a boy, 4. Each month has a theme. The highlights are holidays and birthdays, including that of the children's grandfather, who is a bigger kid than all of them. Unfortunately, the calendar took a hiatus last year, but it is back, twofold, this time around, and it's better than any other calendar I have ever had or could ever be part of myself. Until now, the best desk calendar I have ever got was from 2022. It was called Pun Intended and featured a pun a day for an entire year. January 11th, my birthday. A boiled egg for breakfast is hard to beat. April 28th. Seven days without a pun makes one week. December 23rd, Santa's helpers are subordinate clauses. As a grown man, I am hanging on to this calendar, which has me in a daze. 
The replacements for last year's non-existent grandchildren calendars featured nature scenes, flowers, trees, and snowy landscapes. Not things that could kill you, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. We've also had calendars with cute little puppies and kittens, because my wife is on the ASPCA mailing list, but none featuring young, nice-looking human beings, which is why I don't have my own calendar. Still, if the Chippendales can be on a calendar and hunky firefighters can get their own calendar, why not a calendar geared to geezers? Last year, after seeing Martha Stewart on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, I contacted SI and pitched the idea of putting me on the cover, in a speedo. I never heard back. I also didn't get responses from the editors of GQ and AARP. The magazine, who were probably afraid that circulation would plummet if they featured my goofy visage and flabby form on the covers of those otherwise esteemed publications. So I'm hoping that for 2025, there could be a calendar featuring grandparents, and I could be the star, prominently displayed every month from January, scraping the ice off my car, to July, drinking beer in a hammock, to December, fumbling with holiday wrapping paper I bought from my grandchildren's school fundraisers. Then I could really be a calendar guy. And I could sing my own version of that classic Neil Sedaka song, each and every day of the year. Now, an entertainment brief. Hilton hates going out now that she has a child. Paris Hilton hates going out since she became a mother. The 42-year-old hotel heiress had her son Phoenix in January 2023 and a daughter named London in November, both via surrogate, with her husband Carter Rayum, 43, and has now revealed that she's given up her party lifestyle because she would rather stay at home with her young family. During an outing to the Grammy Awards in Los Angeles on Sunday night, she told Access Hollywood, Just every day waking up and seeing them smile, it just makes my life feel so complete, so full. I miss them so much right now. I hate going out now, because I just want to be with them every second. It comes after Hilton confessed she's been struggling to juggle her work commitments with her new role as a parent, and is learning to say no to work off so she can spend more time with the kids. She told CNN, The one thing is being a working mom and balancing it all. I have a crazy schedule, so I'm learning to say no and trying to spend as much time as possible with my little ones. Hilton added of her new baby daughter, She is doing amazing, my little princess. I feel over the moon. We are so in love with her. For the final entertainment brief, Aldous Hodge opened to Invisible Man sequel. Aldous Hodge is willing to star in a sequel to The Invisible Man. The 37-year-old actor played the part of Detective James, James Lanier in the 2020 horror film and would be willing to team up with director Lee Whannell and co-star Elizabeth Moss on a follow-up, although he hasn't heard any updates about a new movie. Speaking to Screen Rant, Hodge said, No, I haven't heard any updates. I know people were talking about it. I was like, who's going to be the invisible person? Is it going to be the invisible baby? Like, what are we doing? No, I'm kidding. If they did a sequel, I think that'd be awesome. Lee Whannell is amazing. Working with him was just fantastic, and his sort of knack for suspense in drawing that out. The Black Adam star continued, and Elizabeth Moss, she's great. We had a really nice time on that. So yeah, if there was a sequel, I'm definitely down, but I haven't heard any murmurings since. Moss starred in the film as Cecilia Cass, a woman convinced she's being stalked by her abusive husband even though he supposedly took his own life, and previously revealed that she was prepared to feature in a sequel if there was enough audience interest. 
And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, February 7th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Eleanor McCullough from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.